You've written that the 21st century will be the era of human restoration in the natural world. What do you mean by that? That quote is from uh, The Nature Principle. Not long after uh, Last Child in the Woods came out, actually it was the end of the official book tour in North Carolina, uh, I was at a reception that was uh, kindly held for me by some of the environmental organizations in that area. And I was told that, that uh, Thomas Berry was coming and that it was the first time he'd been out of his um, assisted living uh, uh, home in three years since a stroke. I was very moved by that because he'd been a hero of mine for some time. And he, he came, and over the next couple of years, every time I went through North Carolina, I would, I would uh, take him to lunch at his favorite restaurant. Um, and we would talk, and I would listen. And his take on the, on the, the 20th century, he was 91 when I met him. His, and all he wanted to talk about was the 21st century. He didn't like the 20th century. He'd lived through almost all of it. And his take was that in the 20th century, we lost our way. That human beings for eons have depended on two sources uh, primarily for their sense of meaning in life. One was their religious texts, and the other uh, is the universe itself, nature. Um, and he said, in the 20th century, we lost our way. The reason he liked to talk about the 21st century, he thought that the great work of the 20th, 21st century was to bring that back into balance and to reconnect with the, with the natural world. Uh, and I think he's right. And that's certainly the work that the transition movement is, is doing. Um, and I... You know, so often things like the transition movement or the kinds of things that I talk about are uh, dismissed as though that's just back to nature, more of that. It's one of the reasons, other than the, to dis dismiss the phrase, that I don't use the phrase back to nature. I talk about forward to nature, a different kind of future. The, uh, the term nature deficit disorder in The Last Child in the Woods is very much focused on the impacts that that that, that uh, syndrome has on has on children. What does it do to to adults? Do you think? How does that manifest in society? Well, you know, many of the kids that I interviewed for Last Child in the Woods uh, are adults now. You know, kids do grow up, and. Uh, uh, one of the things we know from some of the research is that almost all environmentalists, conservationists, whatever we want to call ourselves, uh, had some transcendent experiences in nature when they were kids, where they felt close to nature. They had a personal relationship with nature. Uh, what happens if that ends? What, if, what happens if most experience becomes virtual, disconnected from the natural world? Who will be the future stewards of the earth then? Uh, it is true that there will always be environmentalists and there will always be uh, conservationists, but if we're not careful, environmentalists and, and others who care about the future of nature will carry nature in their briefcases, not in their hearts. 
And that's a very different relationship, and I don't think it is sustainable. That's one impact. The other impacts are extensions of what we know about the effect of the natural world on children. Uh, throughout our lives, we uh, have chances to grow. We have chances to uh, grow new, new neural pathways. We have chances to uh, uh, be healthier psychologically, physically. We have challenges to our cognition or potential uh, cognitive improvement. Um, we, of course, have to make a living. We raise our families. We have to decide how best to be happy or pursue happiness. In every one of those areas, the emerging research, and it's only emerging fairly recently, in the last dozen to 15 years, in every one of those areas, whether it's kids or adults, it shows that having more nature experience in our lives can uh, contribute positively. Uh, particularly in the area of mental health, there seems to be more uh, uh, research on mental health than there is on physical health, although physical health is starting to catch up. Uh, for example, um, studies, uh, and, and by the way, uh, there, there's good research being done at, in England in the UK, um, uh, the University of Essex is doing great stuff. Um, uh, 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 you have other leaders there. Um, trying to think of the doctor's name at Natural England. He was at Natural England. Um, I'm losing his name. Maybe I can. We can stick it in later. Um, but this emerging research, for instance, some of it looks at people on treadmills in gyms and compares how they do to another group of people who are expending the exact same number of calories, but they're doing it uh, outside uh, in green exercise, hiking or gardening. In both of those cases, the same number of calories is burned. For the people who are on treadmills and gyms, uh, their blood pressure gets better, their psychological well-being improves. But people who it burned the same number of calories in green exercise outdoors in more natural settings uh, get even better. So we really don't understand why that's true. Uh, this is a terribly under-researched arena. I think it's almost an academic scandal that only recently have we looked at researchers, the academic world really looked seriously at how exposure to the natural world shapes our development, both physically and uh, uh, mentally, uh, and that includes our cognitive development too. Um, I took my kids on holiday um, a couple of weeks ago down to Cornwall and further down in the southwest here, and um, we one evening we went, I took them for a walk down the down a lane and we saw glowworms uh, in the hedge, which was the first time they'd ever seen glowworms. And I think possibly the first time I have since I was a child and my parents took me out one evening on holiday to go and see glowworms uh, in the hedge. And it was a very magical uh, moment, a very magical experience. And I wonder what your sense was, what, what happens to us when we have experiences like that? Why do, they, why do they matter so much? What do they do to us? 
Well, Rachel Carson wrote about the sense of wonder in a book by that same name. Um, uh, she understood this early on. Um, uh, first, there's the, the genetic component to that. Uh, E.O. Wilson at Harvard talks about his biophilia hypothesis, uh, that we are hardwired uh, as a species to have an affiliation with the rest of nature. Uh, you know, studies have been done about the uh, uh, images that human beings are most attracted to. And uh, this work has been done in all kinds of cultures, all kinds of settings, among people who have never spent much time in nature as well as those living fully in the natural world. And what they find is that the images that human beings are most attracted to are images of nature. And of those images, images of uh, landscapes, the number one landscape that human beings are attracted to is, is the image, are images of the savanna. Now, where are we from? That doesn't prove that there's a genetic link or a genetic um, you know, connection to that past, but it certainly illustrates the conversation. Um, this is part of who we are. Uh, when we deny that to our kids, when we deny that to ourselves, as one young 11-year-old uh, girl I interviewed said, um, this was in my own grade school uh, back in Kansas City uh, that I interviewed kids in for one of the settings se sessions. This, and this little girl, I'd been told to listen to her in particular by the, uh, the teacher there. And she called this little girl their little poet. And I, I asked uh, uh, the class, and this was one of the few schools, by the way, where I found that kids were still going out in the woods in any kind of number at all. And I asked them, well, what do you see when you're in the woods? And many of them talked about, uh, you know, I, as a kid, I may have talked about cowboys and Indians. These kids talked about National Geographic. That's what they projected into the woods. Uh, they talked about space, Star Wars, things like that. This one little girl stood up, the little poet, and she said, when I'm in the woods, I feel that I am in my mother's shoes. When I'm in the woods, I feel that I'm in my mother's shoes. And she said, I used, I had a special place. Uh, it was a little dugout hole underneath a big tree in the woods. And I kept my blanket down there. And I would go down to the woods. And I would lie on my blanket. And I would look up through the leaves and the branches. And I would think of my poems. And she said, one day I went down there and my tree had been cut down and my blanket was gone and my special place no longer existed. And she said, when they cut down my tree, they cut down part of me. I don't think the little poet was speaking metaphorically. I think she was speaking uh, directly and realistically. If E.O. Wilson is right, if this emerging research about its impact on our health and our development is correct, then literally this is part of us. This is one of the reasons why I've argued for some time, I did it in the Nature Principle, I did in a piece for Orion magazine several years ago, I argued that this should be considered a human right to have a positive connection to nature. September of last year, the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, 
uh, with some input from uh, several sources, including the Children Nature Network, uh, passed a resolution saying that children, in fact, have a human right to a positive connection in the natural world and to a healthy environment. That's a big step. I know I veered away from your question. But. So 2005 was when the, the Last Child in the Woods first came out. Do you think things have got better or worse since then? Um, I'd like to think they've gotten better, but that's could be wishful thinking. It could be accurate. Uh, in some areas, uh, we do th- see progress. For instance, just the idea being accepted by, a, you know, an international, uh, you know, I don't know how many countries, many, many countries of the IUCN. You know, there, I think there were 10,000 people that, uh, I, I better check on that figure, but 10,000 people came to their uh, international congress uh, and pass that resolution. That, to me, is symbolic progress. Uh, it means it's being taken seriously. Uh, we see in the United States that pediatricians are beginning to take this seriously. I was asked to give the keynote at the 2010 um, uh, National Conference of the uh, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. And there are about 5,000 pediatricians and pediatric nurse practitioners and others at the conference. And I spoke about this since then, and it's not because of that speech, but I think there's just growing awareness. Since then, uh, quite a few pediatricians have started literally prescribing nature experience. Uh, There is, for instance, a physician, a pediatrician in Washington, D.C., who, with others, has organized information. They've mapped all the parks of Washington, D.C., and, and they're signing up pediatricians who literally write prescriptions. Uh, uh, to families to get outside and, and get into these parks, and, and particularly the ones in, that are more natural. In Portland, Oregon, the uh, local physicians are working with uh, the park district, uh, and they write a prescription or a recommendation, and when the family gets home, the park district calls them and says, here's what we can do for you. The family shows up at the park. The park ranger is now acting as park health paraprofessionals, a role they really like, uh, help the uh, uh, family families get their green exercise, and they'll sign off on this, send it back to the pediatricians or the physicians, and over time they're going to study the effect. That's a sign of, of progress. In the United States and the Children Nature Network, which is the nonprofit that grew out of last job, um, uh, I'll have to check the most the, the, the most recent numbers are on the website, the, the uh, homepage of the website. Um, but I, I believe it's uh, around 120 regional and state campaigns and provincial campaigns in North America have been created just in the last few years to connect kids to nature. And many of these are really large campaigns statewide, provincial, uh, province-wide in Canada, nationwide in Canada. Uh, uh, and they are bringing people together who normally don't want to be in the same room. Uh, there's something powerful about this issue of reconnecting kids to nature that transcends political boundaries, religious boundaries, uh, professional boundaries. It gets people out of their silos. And I've seen this happen uh, again and again. And there's other great and positive things happening. But um, whether that is keeping up with 
uh, some of the barriers that are growing, uh, I, I hope, but I don't think it's keeping up with some of those barriers. But when I get discouraged or when we get discouraged, we think about all those kids that probably are getting outside into nature who might not have. And that's, that's certainly uh, progress uh, at that level. Have you seen George Monbiot's book, Feral, that he published earlier this year? I have. That, that concept of rewilding, I wondered what you thought about that. And what does, what does a process of rewilding give to uh, a culture? What does it bring back into a culture? What do we gain from that? Well, first, by, by the way, I should say that uh, in the UK, there's been a lot of progress, too, before I go on. I mean, I, I know that some things there are controversial, uh, um, but, you know, I've been to the UK several times, and there are big organizations there that are taking this seriously and doing quite a lot more, and there's nonprofits that are emerging there that didn't, have, didn't exist a few years ago, and some of the best research is being done in the UK, so I wanted to add that. Um, uh, in terms of, of rewilding, uh, I, you know, obviously I'm all for it. The nature principle was very much about that, but I didn't call it rewilding. Um, it, it's really about incorporating uh, the natural world as best we can into where we live, work, learn, and play, into the cities that we live in. As of 2008, more people live in cities than in the countryside in the entire world. That's a huge moment in human history, and it goes largely unremarked. That means one of two things. Either as urbanization continues, human beings will continue to lose whatever connection to the natural world they still have, or it means the beginning of a new kind of city. You know, I like door B. <laughs> I like the idea that we could be headed for... Whole, a whole new approach to urban living. The transition movement is absolutely part of that. Uh, uh, I see the potential, as others do, for cities to become incubators of biodiversity. The urban parks that have the highest degree of biodiversity are the ones that have been shown to have the most positive impact on human psychological well-being. My sense is that the human human beings are a very lonely species. That to the extent that we think that we're alone on this earth and in this universe, uh, separate from other species or more important than other species, uh, even though the evidence suggests that we certainly are dominant so far. But to the degree that we separate ourselves from nature and, through, and from all the other creatures on earth, we become more lonely and our path, pathologies uh, uh, grow. Um, so I don't think it's any accident that when you look at, at parks with higher biodiversity in urban settings, people feel better there. People do better psychologically. Uh, so, you know, E.O. Wilson and others have talked about uh, biophilia. There's a whole new, I'm sure, you know, you're all over this, understand this, but there's a whole uh, very interesting 
development in architecture and urban planning, biophilic architecture, which incorporates nature uh, into the design of a workplace or a city from the very beginning or a school and then keeps it there. And the people in those workplaces or school have been shown to be more productive. Sick time goes down, turn, uh, turnover gets better, uh, productivity goes up. What if we began to look at our whole society in that way, that if we were not so alone, uh, we would do better in all ways if we didn't pretend we were alone on this earth. And if in the very design of where we live, there we had more company. We had, we had a, a deeper relationship uh, with the life around us, not only animals, but plants as well. Uh, what would that be like? What would that city be like? What does a healthy relationship with technology look like? I noticed that you've been doing a few media appearances over the summer with the question about surely kids should be out of doors rather than sitting inside playing on their Xbox all day. What, what, what for you does a healthy relationship with nature look like? With technology look like, sorry. Sure. Yeah, you know, both in last child, but particularly in the nature principle, um, I'm, I, I try to make very clear that I'm not anti-tech. I mean, you and I are talking by Skype right now. It's hard to be anti-tech while we're talking on Skype. I'm not. Uh, in fact, for a long time, I was an early adapter, and now I think I'm a late arrival. Um, uh, I'm falling behind. But in the nature principle, I talk about something called the hybrid mind. <clears throat> Um, the best way to describe that is I met a fellow who, who trains people how to become pilots of cruise ships. We need a few good pilots of cruise ships, apparently. Um, he said he gets two kinds of students. One kind grew up mainly on couches and playing video games and watching television and in front of computers indoors. And he said that that kind of student has a great talent and great ability that I need on my ships. That kind of student is really good at the electronics. I have a lot of electronics on my ships. He said the other kind of student grew up mainly outside. Uh, maybe they were in an agricultural community. Maybe they just did a lot of, of, of camping and hiking. But he said that that kind of student who grew up mainly outdoors, uh, also has a great talent that I need. That kind of student actually knows where the ship is. And I, he wasn't being facetious or funny. Uh, I laughed because I thought it was pretty funny, but he was being serious. He said, they can literally tell you, have, they have little, their senses are more sharply attuned to literally where the ship is in space, on water in a port as it's moving. And he said he needs that kind of talent too, obviously. He said his ideal student would be a student who has both sets of abilities, both the set that comes from uh, 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 electronics, more uh, both from the virtual, but also he needs that other balancing set of senses that are developed more in the natural world. Um, that to him would be an ideal student. And in the, in the um, nature principle, uh, I call that the, the hybrid mind. 
I gave a speech in, in Boston recently, and this was to, um, it's an annual conference called Learning in the Brain, and it's a very big conference, and it's put together by MIT, and I believe Harvard, and and uh, and others, and it's it's heavily focused on technology uh, as the years have passed. Many educators in the audience, many technology people in the audience, and I presented this idea about the hybrid mind there, and the response was unexpectedly positive. Uh, I was surprised. I thought it would not be that positive. And I think that one reason was the educators there had a sense of relief that I was not accepting the idea that we needed to flood our schools with more technology. There's quite a lot there already. And there is a big economic force for more technology in our schools to essentially immerse kids in uh, technology. That economic force knows exactly what kind of future school it, it wants. It, it really, you know, the good news uh, is that testing, as we know, it will disappear. To me, the not so good news is that we won't need that kind of testing anymore because the machines will be watching kids all the time. Every keystroke, everything they do. That economic force would like schools filled with video games, literally, as teaching tools. None of that has very much to do with getting going outdoors and having cognitive improvement from what nature gives us, what natural setting. And there's a lot of research on that that really shows uh, really significant improvements in test scores uh, and so forth uh, from being in uh, taking your class outside into nature. Um, so I, I don't accept that as the future. It, that doesn't mean I'm anti-tech, though. The technology will be there, whether we like it or not. And some of that is great for education. But the point being, if we focused on the hybrid mind as one of the goals of education, then we would get the best of both worlds. The, the technology people in the audience came up to me later, um, and they too were relieved that I said that because I didn't attack technology as evil. That's not the issue. You know, being a Luddite is not the goal. Uh, having a sense of balance, I think, uh, is the goal. And in our schools, for instance, I think that for every dollar we spend on the virtual, we should spend another dollar on the real. And if we do that, we'll be okay. Do you, is your sense that, the, that our, um, our separation from nature is one of the key things that's at the heart of the ecological crisis that we face? Uh, yes. First off, I, sh I should add, a way to look at technology that I do in the Nature Principle is the more high-tech our lives become, the more nature we need. It's a kind of equation that we need to apply to, I think, every area of our lives. Because our lives are going to get more technology, te technological. But we can increase the amount of nature around us. One of those ways is through conservation is through conserving what nature we have left. And I know that the definition of the definition of nature can be tricky. So we won't even I won't even go into that unless you want me to, but the uh, conservation is essential uh, if we're going to have that sense of, of balance with technology. And it's essential for many other reasons, obviously, for biological reasons, for health reasons and so forth. But 
in the nature principle, I make the argument that conservation is no longer enough. Now we need to create nature. That's a different way of looking at uh, environmentalism, I think. And by that, I mean different kinds of cities. I mean, bringing back butterfly and bird migration uh, uh, routes by uh, replanting our yards in native species and even in the densest urban neighborhoods, green roofs that can bring back uh, the migratory uh, routes of, of species, of native species. Um, we can enrich in our lives in that way. But if we're only trying to uh, conserve what we have left, uh, I think that over time, if that's all we do, that's a losing game. But if we, in addition to conserving every square inch of wilderness that we still have, we begin to create nature where we live, work, learn, and play in new ways, that's a different kind of future. And I think it's the, it's the uh, route that the transition uh, uh, towns, I think, are, are taking. You know, you would be able to talk better to that than I can, of course. With transition groups now in uh, around the world working at that community level, trying to build resilience back into local economies and so on, what what would your advice be to them in terms of how to bring the nature principle, how to bring the insights from what from what you do uh, into the work that they're doing? I don't want to presume to <laughs> to tell anybody how to how to do that because the transition. Uh, movement is so far ahead of so many other uh, efforts around the world that I wouldn't presume to to give a prescription to it uh, or or to tell it it could do better. I mean, it's doing great things, and I write about it with admiration in the Nature Principle. But I think that there is an overarching issue that environmentalism, in general has ignored often, not all environmental. I think I don't think this would necessarily, I don't think this applies to transition movement. Um, I become increasingly concerned over time about how we talk about the future, first to our kids, but also to ourselves. Um, I've become convinced that most Americans, and I think this would be true of most people in the UK and most people in the developed world the so-called developed world, uh, and perhaps beyond that, any place where there is fast-growing urbanization and where uh, the uh, uh, Western media has permeated. Um, I think most people carrying around carry around images of the future, the far future, that look a lot like Blade Runner or Mad Max or at best the Hunger Games. At least there's a little a few trees in the Hunger Games. Um, in the United States, at least, and I bet this is true of, of the UK, uh, the number one um, uh, uh, fiction genre for young adults is called dystopic fiction. Uh, it's about a post-apocalyptic world. It's about a world that not even vampires are having a good time in. My feeling is that there's nothing wrong with dystopic literature. In fact, there's everything right. 1984 was a good warning. But what happens when our narrative about the future, our internal subconscious images that we carry around in the future all the time, 
become dystopic, become prom predominantly post-apocalyptic. Uh, and I'm talking at a, about a kind of a subconscious view of the future in the far future, not next week or the year after, but what, where are we headed? I, I sat with some, or some, you know, I spent a lot of time with students these days, and some students at DePaul University took me to, took me to lunch. They wanted to talk to me about their future, and these were all environmental studies students. So they were already committed to the environment. Uh, one of them said that he had tried to join some of the, some of the local chapters of some of the big in, environmental, national environmental organizations. And he said, it didn't work out for him. He said, for one thing, they all look like you, Mr. Lou. And I said, oh, thanks a lot. In other, in other words, he was saying they all look old. And in fact, the, one of the largest environmental organizations in the world, and I won't name it because I don't like embarrassing them, their average membership age, I believe, is 78, and their average new member is 74. So I think the old members get together and they haze the new members. Um, uh, and that, that has been true for some time of the major environmental organizations. They're kind of like newspapers. Newspaper readers have gotten older and older. And the, and the big environmental organizations are worried about that. They know about that. They're worried that they're going to age out. And that's because of two reasons. One is that they haven't until recently, and they're doing a lot now. They have to be given great credit. But they haven't done much to reach out to young people. The second reason had to do with what a young woman at that table told me. This student said, and she, she was a very hip young woman. I know that because she had tattoos. She said, um, uh, I'm 20 years old. And all my life, I've been told it's too late. And I thought about that for a minute, and I said, my God, 20 years, that's about the window. That's, that's about right. That's the window that the news media, and I was involved with the news media for a long time, but the, the news media and Western entertainment media, uh, uh, but also to an extent, environmentalism itself, that's the message that's been getting through, that it's too late. And yes, other messages come through, but I'm talking about the one that's deep, that, that settles deeply in people's psyche. Uh, if I'm right, and if most people are carrying around those dominant images of the far future as being post-apocalyptic, uh, that is maybe a larger barrier to our future than even climate change. You can't do much about climate change unless you have the idea that the future can actually be not just adequate, but better. I use the word sustainable, but I think that word has limitations. Uh, to most Americans, at least, the word sustainability conjures up energy efficiency, and that's it. It's kind of a technical term. It describes survival, getting by, breaking even. Um, Rightly or wrongly, and I know there are broader definitions and it started out more broadly than that. Rightly or wrongly, at least among Americans, that's how most people interpret that word. I think if that is our goal, we won't get to sustainability. We won't get even close to energy efficiency if that's our goal. I think we have to set the bar much higher. 
in order to get to even to that goal. That's why increasingly, rather than talking about sustainability or sustainable cities, I talk about nature-rich cities, nature-rich schools, nature-rich towns, nature-rich workplaces, a nature-rich life, a nature-rich civilization. The idea that nature brings us wealth in the deepest sense. It brings us out, out of our loneliness as a species. It Yes, it brings energy efficiency if we do it correctly, but it brings an enrichment to our lives that we can get in no other way. When we begin to see the far future that way, then we begin to be able to see uh, energy, um, uh, um, uh, not just energy-rich cities or energy-efficient cities, but nature-rich cities. We see a city that, a garden, a city that, doesn't have a, you know, simply a city that is beautiful. We bring the idea of beauty back into it when we begin to see that, those images of the future. Martin Luther King said and demonstrated in many ways that any culture, any movement will fail if it cannot paint a picture of a world that people will want to go to. I think we've been failing at painting that picture. Now, transition movement is one of the, I believe, one of the few bright spots where a, an, images are being painted, not just of a quote-unquote sustainable, as in energy-efficient future, but a beautiful future, a wonderful future, a better future than what we have now. If we can't have that goal, we won't get to uh, the goal of energy efficiency or survival.